0: The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism Abu Dhabi. Sadiaq Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi. Proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up.
1: There's nothing better than bike lanes. If you want a greater city, start by building a bike lane.
2: Without addressing these climate inequities in these communities, we're not going to get to the climate solutions that we're seeking.
0: Conference season continues here on The Urbanist as this week we head to Amsterdam for this year's edition of Bloomberg City Lab. This is a prime location for mayor spotting, as well as the perfect place to learn a few lessons from attendees both on and off the stage. And beyond the obvious Dutch topics, yes, we'll be discussing bikes. No, none of it was waffle. We delve into some of the important global issues too, from protests to plants and even pedestrianisation. That's all ahead, right here on The Urbanist, with me, Andrew Tuck. So, let's recap some of those lessons that we've learned in Amsterdam as we bring you a few snapshots of our conversations from earlier this week. Lesson number one, we learned how powerful a tree can be. Providing shade, filtering the air, calming the mind or even sheltering you from a storm. The benefits of having a few more trees on our streets and in our neighbourhoods goes beyond what you might imagine. So just how much can a tree do to improve quality of life and make cities more livable? I was lucky enough to steal some time with Amanda Burden principal of planning for Bloomberg Associates, who took some time away from staging a successful edition of CityLab to get in the weeds with me about the power of nature in our cities. Here, Amanda starts by explaining the truly transformative nature of a greener city.
3: Very much today, the conversation was around the effects of the pandemic and the climate crisis. And I believe strongly that nature is an important solution to those issues. And one, it's an equity issue as well, because there's lack of investment in nature, in greenery, not just tree canopy. Because trees, just they can do so much. They bring cool, they absorb some of the pollution. But if you just have trees in a city, they're really sticks in the winter. So the idea is to really green a city. And I feel strongly that even immersive nature, where you actually have a kind of a green sponge in cities, where it not only serves the purpose that we needed during the pandemic, I'm sure you felt that too, that being closer to nature has a very big healing power, but that healing power can also be to collect our rainstorms and to affect heat and extreme heat, and also affect pollution and clean water. So I always think as much as Nature is very important for healing and wellness. It's also important to actually address the effects of the climate crisis.
0: I also thought it was fascinating to hear from the, the mayor of Birmingham, Alabama, who said Look, in our city we have this we have no rivers, we're landlocked, but we suffer from flooding. And one of the big things is just having these huge asphalt parking lots.
3: Yes, all parking lots should have design requirements. First of all, we shouldn't have so many and that's because of zoning where they're required. So we should get rid of parking lots. But if they have to be built, they should be half green so they actually have bioswales to absorb the, the rainfall, et cetera, and trees. There's a very interesting thing about trees is that many poor neighborhoods are very worried that trees will gentrify a neighborhood. And this is something that we all have an obligation to dispel is that trees must be planted in neighborhoods and to convince the neighbors how important it is both for their mental health for absorbing carbon dioxide and for absorbing pollution as well and that's a terrible tragedy that actually happens in many cities that we've found around the country
0: how do you overcome that?
3: i think you have to have neighborhood leaders who are convinced how important it is and they talk to their neighbours about why it's important. It also I mean, does everything. It also slows traffic and makes it a more walkable neighbourhood. Neighbourhoods have to say, we want trees in our neighbourhoods.
0: Grab your notebook, because we're pedalling along to lesson number two. Every city can be a cycling mecca. We might think that the Dutch inclination to choose two wheels is built into their DNA, but following in Amsterdam's tracks is an option that's open for all cities. They just might not realise it yet. Announced at CityLab was the Bloomberg Initiative for Cycling Infrastructure, offering up to a million US dollars to 10 cities to innovate in cycling infrastructure – to get three years of technical assistance and also access to a network of like-minded places to share challenges and also, hopefully, some successes. Well, Monaco's Carlotta Ribello caught up with Jeanette Sadiq Khan, Principal of Transport for Bloomberg Associates, to learn more about the new scheme. She began by asking how to balance the differences between cities and how to Every offer Every city is different, and there's advice.
1: no one-size-fits-all. There's no one-size-fits-all cities with a bike lane. They have to be designed for different contexts. So the Global Street Design Guide actually recognizes that. And so it's got different designs for different sizes of streets, different types of streets, different types of networks, and puts it all together in an easy-to-use guide. It's been translated into six languages because, you know, the language of sustainable streets is universal and we want everybody to be able to access it and it's available for free. But the idea being that let's share what works and what doesn't for different types of cities. But even though there's no one size fits all, all cities face many of the same challenges. right? And so you're a mayor, you're trying to put in a new you know, bike lane, a lot of times you'll have a backlash. That doesn't matter what size city you are, big, small,
4: you face some of the very
1: same concerns.
4: What, from your experience, have been some of the challenges, the main challenges that cities are facing at the moment to try to convince people to embrace this green revolution? When I was transportation commissioner in
1: New York City under Mike Bloomberg, I used to say we had 8.4 million New Yorkers and it was like we had 8.4 million traffic engineers because everybody had very strong opinions about how their streets should be used. And I think that's a great thing that people feel so strongly about their streets and so personally about their streets. But anytime you've got streets, you know, you actually have opportunities and possibilities. But you always face the status quo. There are those people that feel like, don't change my street. My street hasn't changed in 30 years. You know, you say you're from the government, and you're here to help, and I don't believe that. And so there's a an innate skepticism sometimes for what this change means. But we found in city after city and country after country, you need to sort of stick the course. You can't make decisions based on the headlines of the day. That's never gonna be a path to success. There's gonna be a backlash, there is to any time you make change of any sort in a city. And so you just have to stick your ground. And what we've seen is that the proof is in the pudding. So in New York City, we put down 400 kilometers of bike lanes. You know what happened? It was better for business. It was better for street safety. You know, it was more opportunity to get to jobs. So it was win, win, win. And so again, but sometimes it just takes a little while for people to get used to a new status quo. When we started in New York City, even with something like Times Square, people thought we were crazy to take the cars out of Times Square and pedestrianize Times Square. And then seven years later, when the next mayor said that they were going to put the cars back, people revolted. You know, no, you've got to leave it. Leave the cars out of Times Square. So there was a new status quo. And so after seven years of transforming the streets of New York City, Mike Bloomberg actually created a new status quo, a new expectation about what our streets are about and who they are for.
4: You mentioned there that adding all this cycling infrastructure brings people. It's good for business, you know, people on bikes can just, you know, park up and go into a shop or a restaurant. But also adapting our streets to focus more on bicycles is also beneficial for people who might not cycle. Removing the cars from the street makes, you know, the whole walking around the city, for example, experience much better for everyone. Putting down a
1: bike lane makes the street safer for everyone. We saw in New York City, you know, I showed a picture of what we had done on 9th Avenue, you know, where we moved the cars away from the curb that protected the cyclists that were using it. We put in crosswalks than pedestrian islands which shortened the distance that people had to cross the street that's not only good for kids, that's good for seniors, that's good for everyone and that's why we saw traffic fatalities go down to their lowest level in a hundred years and so you want a better city you need to build more bike lanes
0: Lesson three we learned about the power of coming together and why mayors should lean on each other In recent years, the role of local leadership has changed drastically. Mayors are in the front line of the key issues that their cities face, being both the first and last port of call for getting things done. In the United States, the National League of Cities has been a vital organisation and learning platform for mayors and local leaders, representing the country's 19,495 cities, towns and villages, along with 49 state municipal leagues. Clarence Anthony is the CEO and executive director of the National League of Cities, and he spoke to Monocle's Carlotta Ribello, who started by asking him about the changing nature of local leadership and what have been some of the major changes in the ways that mayors govern.
5: I really do think that their role has evolved in the eyes of their citizens. And historically, mayors and local leaders have always dealt with every issue because you can ask someone, what's your congressional member name or what's the senator's name in your state? They would not know, but they'd know the name of their mayor because they are neighbors. They go to the same grocery stores, the churches, whatever, because they are their family members and friends. I think what has changed over the last couple of years is With that knowledge, there's a greater expectation from local leaders to solve education issues. Even if they are not responsible for education, people go to them. We need better schools in our community. And you want to say, well, go to the school board that you elect. But what we do say is, "Okay, we'll figure out how to work with you and, and find a way to work with the school board. You know, climate change is a global issue. At minimum, it's a national issue, but there is an expectation again that mayors are going to step up and resolve that issue. So we've been seeing and encouraging mayors to sign on you know, to a compact that would make a commitment to fighting and providing solutions related to climate and sustainability. So we're seeing uh, more and more people recognizing that the local level is the most responsive and the most trusted that's a heavy responsibility and it's one that leaders have to own they cannot pretend that the residents are not expecting them to solve those issues
4: Today we've heard already in one way or another so many times that if you want to get something done, speak to a mayor or yes. to a local official. But the National League of Cities, of course, gathers a lot of different mayors, a lot of different cities, different perspectives. You mentioned climate change there. Is that one of the key topics where working together as one really can make a difference?
5: Yeah, I think one of the things that the National League of Cities does, similar to what CityLab is doing, is that we bring leaders together. And they sit around the table and they do share with each other what approaches they're using to deal with issues of sustainability. And that network of sharing also causes them all to commit similar goals as it relates to climate. And oftentimes there's a little competition to say I was the first or my program is a little bit better. Yeah, it's a healthy competition, but it's one that is needed in order to address this issue of climate. And I think uh, as we listened to Mr. Bloomberg yesterday, he talked about the fires in the West, the floods in my home state of Florida, tornadoes in our country, sea level rise. It goes on and on and on. And municipal leaders around the globe are stepping up and saying, if our national government's not going to do something, we should a bond together, share best practices, learn from each other, and see if we can attack this challenge ourselves. And you're finding that a lot of them are hiring sustainability officers. You know, I even heard of a new concept, a heat officer, that was like, ah, I'm taking that back to the States. And I'm going to share that title with so many people because it's more um, aggressive and it's more real about what you're facing. So, We try as much as possible to look at the issues at the National League of Cities that are priority for leaders. You know, the housing issue, the crime issue is front and center of our leaders. So we do go after those issues that the cities are facing and try to give them solutions. Well, it wasn't just
0: Clarence who learned something about chief heat officers. Our fourth lesson is that heat does discriminate. The role of the chief heat officer is a relatively new position in city halls around the world. But the trend is growing, just as quickly as the need for this new brand of government official grows too. I spoke with Los Angeles chief heat officer, Marta Segura, who was at CityLab talking about the fact that heat doesn't affect all citizens in the same way. We pick up the conversation with Marta, explaining the reasons behind that strange but true fact.
2: There have been communities in Los Angeles that have been historically disinvested. We call them the red line communities. And those communities have a mixture of not just residences but pollution creating industries. They also have been crisscrossed by freeways or they live near oil drilling and refineries. So industry and residences are completely adjacent to each other. So those communities have pre-existing health conditions much more so than other communities because their bodies are already compromised by those exposures, those daily exposures. UCLA did a 10-year retrospective study on where the hospitalizations were and where the premature deaths were during the heat waves in the last 10 years it was these what we call environmental justice communities or environmental burden communities that were the most impacted and the most affected so what that tells us is that we have to be much more proactive as a city and invest in short-term solutions and long-term solutions and that includes awareness building training providing cooling centers hydration stations more shade so when pedestrians take the bus, uh, pedestrians walk to work, they are not overexposed to the heat and they have heat refuge. Right now the city has a lack of this shade equity, especially in those low-income communities and that unfortunately is part of the overall problem in Los Angeles for these low-income communities. Now,
0: city halls are challenged when it comes to resources and money. So how are you allocating funds and how quickly can you begin to change the situation in one of these neighbourhoods. Planting trees takes a long time. Re-engineering parks isn't an overnight thing. But are these the kinds of things you're in the medium term as well that you're thinking about?
2: Yes, we are. And, And we did already conduct a tree inventory and a shade equity study. So instead of just having a goal of planting a million trees, which is what a former mayor did, we're having a strategic goal of investing in the communities that most need trees. And we're investing in trees that are already more mature so that we can have more instant shade. And then we're also adding more shade structures and bus shelters. We have, for example, right now a 10-year plan to add bus shelters that provide shade in these communities with hydration stations, with Wi-Fi, for example. But I would like to accelerate that. That 10-year plan is too long, and we need to focus our federal investments and our state investments so that they're at least 40, 50 percent invested in those communities. And the Biden administration has also made that very clear. He created the Justice40 initiative to tell city leaders, I want you to use no less than 40 percent of the infrastructure dollars that your city will get in these frontline environmental justice communities so that we can begin to address these inequities. But also, I think we all realize now that without addressing these climate inequities in these communities. We're not going to get to the climate solutions that we're seeking.
0: We had a conversation yesterday with somebody who was saying that sometimes when you try and make these positive changes in communities, people wonder who they're for, whether it's going to lead to gentrification, whether it's really for their benefit. Do you have to have a bit of a conversation before you go and plant a road with lovely trees or put up shady canopies? Do you need to get people thinking, okay, this is for me, this isn't for outsiders?
2: Yeah, we have a whole conversation, a series that started last year called the Climate Equity LA series. So we're having that series co-designed by these frontline communities. So we have been having that conversation. And the beauty of my office is then we have a commission, the Climate Emergency Mobilization Commission. We just recently provided them with the report that came out of that series of all the focus groups and input that we got from the community. And it gave 10 recommendations for the council to consider so that this displacement and these unintended consequences don't happen in our community.
0: As we've just heard, extreme heat can severely affect the subject of our next lesson, water. We learned that this is a resource that is severely misunderstood. Recent weeks have inundated our screens with images of floods and storms causing unprecedented damage in cities around the world. And in the summer, a lack of water led to extreme drought levels in Europe. Henk Oving is the Special Envoy for International Water Affairs for the Netherlands. Carlotta started by asking him if cities are starting to understand the need to take water seriously.
6: More and more around the world, cities face these water and climate related challenges with too much water, but also droughts and heat. So, if there are places around the world that understand those needs, cities are the ones. It's the mayors, the citizens, the communities, the businesses in cities that really face these challenges more often and more severe. At the same time, there is, of course, the question what's next? Does that experience of more water-related disaster also leads to more resiliency actions for using water as a catalyst for becoming more sustainable, becoming more resilient, becoming more equitable. And the latter is not the case yet. Although we see promising examples from cities around the world, the majority still faces these challenges and band themselves out of these disasters towards even a more vulnerable future. So, The time is now, with the increase in these challenges, to step up our actions.
4: What are some of the ways that actions can indeed be stepped up? How do you get everyone on the same page?
6: Water is organized, fragmented in many ways, public and private. It's undervalued and often misunderstood. So the first response often from a finance perspective is that it doesn't pay off. Profits are not easy come. It's also simply explained. If you invest in water, you get better health. But the water budget are never connected to the health budget, not from a public nor from a private sector perspective. So you need a whole of society approach and building coalitions, public and private, to get value-based approaches of investing in water. That is possible. After the high-level panel on water, we set up a value in water initiative where public and private sector partners work together on resiliency, on equity, uh, sustainability of water-related issues. And it's private sector opportunities that really help drive those efforts. At the same time with CDP, the Carbon Disclosure Programme, they have a large water portfolio and they assess water risks for the private sector. And if there's one thing that drives action is risks and highlighting those risks and showing accountability in the context of those water-related risks shows how private sector can step up by mitigating those risks and create added value. Working closely with the private sector is really that it's often a lack of understanding and a missed opportunity. Private sector partners, companies around the world say, hey, all of a sudden instead of a water user we become a water provider and create a healthy environment for not only our own business but also the families and the communities around. Using less water or reducing water and reusing it back again or giving it back to the community other partners, public or private, in our watershed really helps create opportunities. And this is the opportunity side of water, really drives private sector engagement, but also community engagement, NGO engagement and public sector engagement. And I think that is the amazing thing about water... It's not only our worst shock and stress, eh, undermining health, equity, equality, the environment and the economies in our cities. It's also underpinning those opportunities and investing in water with those opportunities help. This is also where next year's UN 2023 Water Conference is about. It's a UN conference, but it's totally dedicated at getting actions from cities, private sector, governments and across ...to the table, showcasing the alternative... ...and showcasing that investing in water is your best bet... ...for scaling, resiliency and sustainability across the world.
0: And finally, we learn that cities can be part of the protest too. The US capital of Washington DC... ...has been the epicentre of protests for as long as the country has existed and the right to peaceful protest has long been a part of the country's fabric. The city was also the setting for the January 6th insurrection on the Capitol building, which saw a crowd turn violent, bringing up questions about policing and how best to act when demonstrations take a turn. But for the city's mayor, Muriel Bowser, Washington DC isn't just a stage upon which to protest. It can also be a part of that conversation too the city flexed their own power to demonstrate in the wake of the killing of George Floyd when they renamed one of the city's pedestrian boulevards Black Lives Matter Plaza, covering the space with a giant mural which also read Black Lives Matter. I spoke with Mayor Bowser shortly after she came off stage and began by asking if she saw her role as one of supporting the right to protest regardless of whether she agrees with the protesters or not.
7: Yes, I do see that as our responsibility It's certainly the expectation of Americans from the entire country and for DC residents and our values.
0: Now one of the stories that we covered in great detail on The Urbanist was the Black Lives Matter movement and what happened in DC and the creation of this plaza which became a a kind of a release valve in a way, a place where people could go and protest and, and feel that the city was taking notice. How important do you think that moment was it for you to engage with the needs of the protesters and the anger that they felt?
7: It was critical to have a safe place for people to grieve, to express their anger, to demand change from the federal government. It was important for us to maintain public safety and order and to use art to do both. People were protesting police brutality, and I think most people can separate the need for protection in law and order from that protest. So you need to be able to have people in a safe environment, but you also need them to be able, whatever the topic is, in this case it was police brutality.
0: But even at that moment, I presume you had to keep lines of communication very open with your police authorities, as well as the people who are protesting and the organizations that were bringing people out onto the streets, how did you balance um, those two things?
7: protest protests, there is organization. Sometimes it's spontaneous. And so when there are organized protests, our police departments talk to organizers, and a lot of times there can be more and better arrangements, whether it's for where the police are going to be, where all of the 911 services are going to be, down to where the bathrooms are going to be. That can happen when there's organization. You saw that with the Women's March, for example. Well, even that some of that was spontaneous. But the protests in this in that summer of 2020 were largely spontaneous.
0: And tell me, the January 6th demonstrations, which we're only now really beginning to understand how they took place, a little bit more of the... The incendiary things that happened behind the scenes again when that was unfolding in the city much of that policing you know, obviously didn't sit with you or with your police authorities was that difficult to sit back and see on your tv screens what was happening in the city that you govern
7: well it's, we certainly weren't sitting back we were in our police headquarters trying to coordinate with federal authorities especially the Capitol police to make sure they had what they need to get more assistance from the National Guard, which is an arm of our military, to make sure that they had what they needed.
0: For you, for the people who have dealt with all of the, these protests, but especially what happened on January 6, are you cautious when people on the right? especially on the far right now, want to protest in the city more than you were before? Is there a feeling from some residents that there should be controls to stop protests happening?
7: Uh, I don't think people think that we should shut down protests. That is a, a right that we're guaranteed by our constitution. I think people feel strongly about. People don't want to see violence and they certainly want us to be smart about our intelligence gathering, especially the the national intelligence infrastructure. I was just asked there, what did I think it was a failure in police I think it was a failure in intelligence gathering to know that there were real violent people who were willing to overthrow their government.
0: Thank you for listening to The Urbanist this week. Look, we think it's important to take you to these events and these conferences because there are so many interesting conversations happening on stage and off that somehow don't filter through to all of the mainstream media, even when there are correspondents in the room. And we also want to make sure that some of the tougher questions that don't get asked on stage come up later on. So it was great to be in Amsterdam with such an eclectic and broad range of mayors from cities all around the world, But also to come away with some questions that we will unpack over the coming months because some of the questions that we want to answer didn't always get answered on the day. So this is a a big debate and we're very pleased to have you along for the ride. But that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Today's show was produced and edited in Amsterdam by Carlotta Rubello and David Stevens, And to play you out this week, his simple minds with Theme for Great Cities. Thank you for listening, city lovers.